I'm Chris Cohen, and this is Bands to Fans, interviews with professional musicians. For this episode, I spoke with Greg Lohman. He is currently the drummer for country artist Easton Corbin. Before that, he spent 10 years as the drummer and music director for Kelly Pickler. We discussed the importance of building up personal capital, the profound impact his school music teacher had on him, and how his world changed after he was in a life-threatening car accident in 2013. This episode is brought to you by us. Bands to Fans does content marketing for bands and individual musicians. Hire Bands to Fans to grow and engage your fan base. You can find us online at bands2fans.com. And now, here's the interview with Greg Lohman. You were the drummer and music director for Kelly Pickler for a number of years, and now you are playing with Easton Corbin. How have you adjusted your playing going from Kelly to Easton? That's a great question. And, I mean, a lot of what we do on the road is you're playing somebody else's parts, right? So mm-hmm. with Kelly... And I was with her for over 10 years. So when we learn a tune, we kind of start like, you know, the original and it would evolve or we would add some stuff to it. So I ended up, I mean, I played like my stuff, but I started, you know, just copying the parts that, and, and over the time she had, you know, from Eddie Bears to Shannon Forrest, Chad Cromwell, Greg Morrow, a bunch of different guys on her record. So for me, it was great because I was able to, to learn and listen to what all those guys did. Mm. Um, and then when I switched to Easton, the, the majority of his stuff, he's got, uh, his first three records was all Eddie Bayers. So I've okay. really gotten to dive into him more. Um, and so I've, you know, I play more of those pose parts and then he's doing some new stuff. And, uh, um, one of the tunes we're playing, it was, uh, uh, who was it? Um, so, oh, Chris McHugh. Yeah, and, and oh, that was a, of, a combination. Uh, um, of, um, yeah, he was oh. with Keith Urban for years. Yes, that's who I was trying to think of. He a ton of session work, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he's great. Um, so that tune we play, it was his last single. It's kind of a combination of programmed drums and live drums, hmm. which to me, I have a blast playing it. I, for my kid on the road, I have a regular 22, but then I also use a little 18-inch kick to the side just to recreate kind of programmed sounds. Um, and then I have a little side snare with one of those big fat snare drum tops on it. So it just found, sounds really deep. Um, so I play that to recreate the loop part. And then I switch back to my regular snare and then the regular kick, you know, when it calls for like on the chorus. And then there are a few times where I switch through the tune. So it's actually a lot of fun for me to play just something different, kind of keeps Mm -hmm. me on my toes and, um, and I'm playing along with the loop. I'm kind of doubling it, just fattening it up. Okay. So it makes me makes me make sure I'm playing like straight on, you know, dead on time, following the loop, you know. Um, so it's, it's that was it's been really cool um, getting to do that. Just a new experience for me, you know. Yeah, and I was um, going to ask you. I and and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was that second kick drum uh because looking at you know photos of your kit and the way it's been set up 
um, it's way out there. And so, you know, yeah. like I've seen, I've seen guys, you know, with like double, you know, they do a lot of double pedal work and they have, you know, both kick drums together and that kind of thing. But I've sure. never seen one set up like that. And, uh, I thought that was really interesting. And so is it, you know, um, first off, you know, how does the pedal system work for that? Cause it's way over. Yeah, it's actually just a double pedal hooked um, to the the 18-inch kick, and then I use the slave pedal to hit it. So okay. from my right foot, I just have to move it over just a little bit to the right, and it's on the slave pedal or the double pedal. Yeah. And it hits the, the middle of the, uh, the ox kick. Okay. Yeah, so it's pretty easy. I just use it for a different sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that started years ago when I was with Kelly – um, I had, per, I got this kit and then I had a little 18 inch kick for it. I wasn't using. And yeah. then she came out, one of her singles had this, you know, loop starting out the tune. Um, it's kind of 808 ish, very open, uh, kick sound. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. um, so well, I kind of thought about it. Well, I'll just try to play that live. And that's, be- this is before we were using any kind of tracks with her as well. So we didn't have any, we weren't using Ableton, no track system. So I, w- I just wanted to play it live. So that's how it kind of started. Um, and uh, so I used that and I put that little symbol on the snare and just to recreate the electronic sound. And then, um, yeah, just kind of kept it. It worked well. And then once we started using tracks, I still kept doing that and just playing it live as opposed to, I'd, I'd rather play something live if I can, as opposed to just sitting there and letting a loop play until the drums come in, you know? Yeah, um, so yeah. I try to do whatever I can just to make that uh, to where I'm actually playing instead of just sitting there, you know. Mm-hmm. But it, um, it, and then when go ahead, I was just going to say it's 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 you know I find it especially fascinating if only because um, talking to various drummers and and the way they try and expand the audible color palette of uh, of what they have access to in a live setting and more and more you see guys with that secondary snare drum off to the left of the hi-hat you're the first guy i've ever seen that's actually come up with another kick that's that's different from the main one um to to give a different sound you know again again most of the time i've ever seen two guys with two kick drums they're they're pretty much exactly the same um right and and so yeah so i I think it's really interesting that you, you know, thought about, hey, you know, we can get, I can get a whole different sound with that. Yeah. And actually, I think maybe Weckl had, I'd seen Weckl do it before or somebody. Uh, it wasn't definitely not my idea, you know, from scratch by any means. I stole it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but no, but I just, I wanted that different sound and I had the option and we had the, the accessibility to, you know, add another channel and use it, throw another mic on it. So they were able to make it work, and it worked. And then actually when I moved to Easton's gig, he's more of a traditional country guy, so I figured I would just lose it and just use one kick. But, you know, a couple of his tunes have loops, and then his, when I joined, he had a single out that was very loop-heavy, so it was like worked perfectly for it, you know? So, mm. um, yeah, so it's still out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, just to continue uh, along the kit theme, you know, I was watching – film of you playing and you play open handed um yes. it seems uh-huh. you do not cross your arms to play the hi hat and the snare 
Um, what I'm wondering is, have you always played it that way? Is that how you were taught? No, actually. Oh. And no. And when I first started playing, I, I'm left-handed, so I write left-handed. Um, but I, I, I'll throw a ball right-handed. I kind of I'm confused sometimes on which hand to use. But <laughs> I write left-handed, so so my dominant hand is my left hand. So when I okay. started like school band, um, I said I was left-handed. So they set up the kit left-handed, and I really didn't know didn't know what I was doing. So I started setting up the kit completely backwards. Mm-hmm. I was using my left foot, and you know crossing over with my left hand on the hat. Um, so I did that from when I started playing up until up through high school. So however many years, eight eight to ten years, I was playing completely backwards. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. I went to went to college, and my instructor suggested I try the open handed thing and play with my right foot. And at the time, I was like, uh, I wasn't real excited about it because I'd been playing, you know, up until then with lead my with my left foot. Yeah. Um, but looking back, that's the best thing that could have ever happened as far as him, him suggesting that Johnny Lane was is his name and he was my percussion instructor where I did undergrad. And, uh, so I, I started playing open-handed then, and it took a while just to get the coordination, especially with my foot. Cause my right foot was pretty weak. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, just all through college, I, you know, played with my right foot and tried to build up the, the strength and then the coordination. And another odd thing for me was doing fills when I would, I was used to going, you know, left, left to right or no, right to left, right to left. Yeah. But now, but now I'm going left to right, but still kind of leading with my left hand sometimes. And, and that was kind of confusing. And actually, mm. um, Will Kennedy, who was, there was this, uh, percussion camp every summer at the college I went to. Mm-hmm. And one of the is, summers, is Will the one who plays with the Will, Yellow Jackets? Yeah, yeah, and he plays yeah, uh, yeah, so fabulous drummer. I was, yeah, as him, he's amazing. And so for me, it's great to get to watch him being an open-handed guy, but you know, um, with on a right-handed kit. So I straight up asked him. This was shortly after I switched doing what I was doing, and I asked him, you know, do you still lead with your left hand? Or you have to lead with your right hand. And he helped me a lot. He, you know, he said, you know, if you lead with your left hand is more comfortable, just do it and just work it around the kit. So I still lead with my left hand most of the time, but Mm -hmm. just practice for I'm not, you know, clicking sticks or, you know, falling over myself when I'm doing a fill. So, but yeah, but now it just feels normal. And I actually, sometimes I'll lead more with my right hand just to, to build up the strength and, you know, try to keep developing, uh, my, uh, dexterity as well. But, but yeah, so yeah, it took a it took a while, but you know, now that I'm playing kind of drums full time, it's been there've been many gigs to where you know I'm doing a gig whether it be with Kelly or whoever, and we're all sharing a kit, and I wouldn't be able yeah. to to swap the kit around. So either I wouldn't be able to do the gig, or they had to get somebody else or whatever. But multiple times that's happened to where you know right now all I do is just I can sit down and just. Uh, play black like i normally do and it's mm-hmm. great but yeah i really i and i just like the 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 idea of the open hand of playing it just opens up you know whether it be you know playing on the hi-hat i feel like i have more dynamic because i don't have to worry about my snare stick getting in the way um and mm-hmm. just doing fills i can I, I just love the open-handed playing in general 
Um, so I'm really, really glad I, I did my instructor back in college suggested I switch. Yeah. And then I'm wondering, and, and I don't even know if you wouldn't, you know, consciously know the answer to this, if it's led to you doing different things on a kit, um, getting kind of a different sound, a different feel, trying, you know, I don't know, just kind of a different, a different vibe yeah, sh- because of that. Yeah, I'm sh- sure. And I'm sure I have. I, I don't know specifically, but I'm sure whether it be certain feels I do. Actually, um, I used to play with this guy, Aaron Tippin, an older country guy, um, years ago. And then since then, the guy that took my place afterwards, he's a great drummer. Uh, his name's Ben Jackson. And he, he told me we we're that kind of brought up um, that whole open handed playing. He's like, yeah, man, some of the fills you were doing, I couldn't do because they were, you know, just didn't work sticking wise. And so um, I'm sure there's some stuff I do that, that, uh, it was I played differently because it was open-handed. And two, um, speaking of Eddie Bayer's, learn a bunch of his parts. He's an open-handed player, so for oh. me, playing those parts, um, I, it makes sense to me what he does. And certain fills he does, I can tell he's leading with his left hand because it feels natural to me. But a right-handed guy, it probably wouldn't feel as good. Um, but yeah, so it's been been good for me, you know, learning really digging into his playing. Um, and learning certain fills he does and just the, um, the feel of what he does is amazing. Um, so, but yeah, he's an open-handed player as well. So anytime I get a chance to see him play, it's, it's great too. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I bet he's, um, he's got quite the rep and is, uh, quite the amazing guy. Oh yeah. Uh, um, so to switch gears, um, you had a blog post recently uh, because it's the you had come up on the fifth anniversary of the you know horrendous car accident yeah. that you were in, right? Um, and I'll try and remember to link to the blog post, you know, because it's 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 a fascinating okay. story and and too much to cover, <laughs> you know, just verbally right. in the podcast. Yeah. Um, what I'm wondering about is. You know, first off, how long did it take you after you had healed before you got back up to speed, so to speak, on the kit? Right. Well, that's a good question. Uh, um, the accident happened the first part of March, and actually about three months later I was back on the road. And I wouldn't say I was up to par then, but I was able to – and I was able to, able to play enough um, – to, to go back on the road with Kelly and she was super supportive through all that. And she said, you know, whenever you feel ready to come out, your job's there, which gave me security knowing that well, it gave me security and also gave me motivation to want to get back out there. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But, but I, I broke my neck. So I had a neck brace on for three months and, and before I left the hospital, I kind of asked what, what am I able to do as far as playing? And they said, you know, do whatever you want, but if it starts hurting, then just stop. So mm-hmm. I just took it very slow. So, and I lost all my muscle, muscle strength too. Um, so it was just, first I just sat down behind a pad, just started slowly building up my hands. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then I sat behind a kit and just kind of slowly started playing. So it just, it was pretty frustrating, but it took a while to, 
you know, stuff you could do for years that I could play for years. I could no longer play simply because I didn't have any strength anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just kind of slowly built that up and just took a very slow, um, you know, every day build on it and, and slowly got to a point to where I felt like I could, you know, you know, at least cover the gig. I don't, I definitely wouldn't say my strength was back fully. Um, but I, and and I wouldn't do the gig if I didn't feel like I could do it well. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. just to, but, but I felt like it was, it was a, and going back out was a great step for me, both physically and mentally knowing that, okay, I can do this. It's just a matter of continuing to build the strength back up. Um, but it was quite the process. Definitely. Yeah. And beyond the, the, the strength aspect, um, because you wrote about, you know, there were entire days of memory that were just wiped from your mind. And so with getting back on the kit, how much of it was, it's like riding a bike and how much of it was a bit of relearning? Um, that's a good question. It definitely wasn't like riding a bike because I feel like when you get on a bike, yeah, it comes back to, you can do it. Whereas when I sat down behind a kid, it was like a, a bike that didn't have pedals or, or it just, no. it was very frustrating because, you know, you don't have the, the ability you did prior to the, I didn't have the ability I did prior to the accident simply because my strength was gone. Right. So, you know, and I hadn't played, hadn't played drums for weeks at that point or probably a month. Mm-hmm. Um, hadn't touched a pair of sticks. So, um, yeah, it was very frustrating physically, but mentally as well. Like I had, you know, I had a, a TBI, which is a traumatic brain injury to where my, uh, had a bunch of bleeding in the brain. So my memory is very shaky for a while. So, and then before I got behind a kit, I was wondering if it would still feel the same if, or if I re- would remember how it would feel, or I was just very kind of skeptical on what it was going to be like if I had to remember how to play or remember the songs or, or, you know, but, but I just took it really slow. Um, and just slowly worked on the strength. And when, when I got my strength back enough to where I feel like I could play through a tune, then that's where I was kind of worried. Like, is this still going to feel the same? You know, mm. uh, I don't want to feel stiff. I don't want to feel like I can't play with a click, but you know, just when you're playing drums that you feel a certain way and you know, whether you're playing to a click or not, you just, how you play is, 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 you know how it's supposed to feel, you know, after playing for years. So right. I was worried I lost that, but thankfully, you know, it, it was, it came back and, um, you know, the strength slowly started building back and it eventually got back to where it was. And I was very thankful for that because it could have very easily been something different to where, you know, either it just didn't feel right or I wasn't comfortable anymore, but thankfully it, it kind of came back and I'm able to, to resume what I was doing prior. Mm. And what about just the, the genuine love of music and playing? Did that immediately come back? Yes. And, and I realized too, back then, you know, I was playing a lot with Kelly. I was teaching a lot and playing in town. So, mm-hmm music was, that's all I did. And I really didn't do anything else. So being able to get back to that was very re- rewarding and refreshing. Like I can still do this and you know, I've got a second chance, a whole new purpose. And like, it was a great feeling. And it, it, music was very, uh, very, 
healing for me, both physically getting back to it and mentally, you know, Mm. because I had something, I wasn't just sitting on my couch being a bum waiting to get better. I I mentally wanted to get back to playing music. So that was a a force for me, a driving force for me to want to get back to doing what I was doing. So Mm. in the the mental aspect helped my physical aspect because I wanted to get back, sit behind drums, build up my, the strength in my hands and arms and and feet. So music all around was a a great healer for me. You know, it kept me, it got me off the couch because I really couldn't do anything else. I couldn't go anywhere. Um, and my family was very family and friends in Nashville, very supportive. Um, but for me personally, music was the the great healer. Mm -hmm. And you wrote that you wrote about your accident uh, bad times can force us to reprioritize. What did yeah. you reprioritize after that? Well, just through that whole process, I realized how I've got, I come from a pretty big family and then how great they are. And a bunch of musician friends in Nashville at the time I'd been in Nashville. She probably 13 years, I think. Um, so I, you know, play with a bunch of people, had a bunch of friends and I knew I had a lot of friends, but you never really know how great they are until you need them. Mm. If that makes sense. Like, yeah. I know, I knew they're great friends, but when you really, you, when you're really in need, they, they step up and uh, tons of people stepped up, whether it be, you know, call and send text, coming to a house to visit. If you need anything, let me know. So all that, the priority wise, you mentioned prior, my priority pressure excuse me, prioritizing, um, that kind of t- um, took precedence to anything else. Like prior to that, music was my focus and that's what I, you know, that's yeah. what I was doing and wanted to do. But now it's more of, you know, your friends, your family, your relationships are, to me, that's more important than music. Because if you don't have any of that, if I didn't have that through my healing process, I would have been a mess. Because you're mentally, like, it's, you know, going through something major like that is tough. And to have that support and that the comfort making you feel com- comfortable as well was huge. So moving forward, um, that's one thing that really changed for me is, you know, value your relationships and don't take it from granted. And it's, it's a shame it takes something like that for me to realize that. You know, but I'm glad I did. And, you know, every time there's something bad that happens in life, which we all go through, you know, it's important. I think it's important. It's tough, but it's important to find the positives that come from it. Mm-hmm. And for me, the positive was the support I had in the friendship. So anytime I have a, a chance to, to help somebody or thank them or talk to them, whatever, that takes precedence over anything else. So and I feel like that. um building those relationships over your, your life helps you in times of need, you know, um, mm. a, a, a good, good friend of mine who was my band director, um, and has since been my, he's pretty much the reason I'm, I'm in music and sought out music, uh, professionally. His name's Craig Linval. And he, he's, a, he wrote a book that's, um, that kind of helped me as well. But it talks about building your, your personal capital, meaning, you know, you build these relationships over the years. And when you need them, you've built up that capital to where they'll help you. But if you go through life and you, you know, don't have many friends or you're 
don't treat people with respect or you're rude. You don't have mm-hmm. much personal capital. So when you do need that help, you know, the, you know, you may have a hard time finding that support. So, um, just a lot of life lessons I've learned from all this and I'm still continuing to, to learn from it, um, which is a great thing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it makes me, there was some podcast I was listening to recently where there, uh, uh, the person was talking about um, just work in general and, and stuff and, and um, the, the difference between givers and takers um, uh-huh. and, you know, how the perspective on a lot of takers is they oh, they always look at everything as what can this person do for me? Uh, right. Yeah, and as yeah. a result, a very so selfishly motivated B they tend to miss out on a lot of opportunities because, uh, people connections, uh, aren't always obviously beneficial. Um, at least not at first glance, you know, it's, it's the person sure. you, you befriend and maybe strike up a random conversation with that turns out to be, you know, someone that changes the, you know, the course of your career. Uh, exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that just, I don't know, your, your talk about personal capital and all that kind of rem- made me, made me think of that. Totally. I totally agree. And it's, it's true. I think, you know, I, yeah, most a lot of the people I've met, whether it be gotten gigs from or just the relationships, they didn't happen overnight. You know, I knew the person for weeks, months before something came about, you know. So I think building that it's in when I meet somebody, my first in, in, intention isn't to see, oh, can they get me a gig or it's just to meet them. And, you know, whether it's having a drink, having a coffee, having lunch, whatever, just to get to know them. And just start that building that relationship, and maybe it won't lead to anywhere, which is fine, or maybe it, it will lead to a gig down the line or work down the line, which is great too. But you, you can't go into um, into the meeting somebody and have a preconceived notion of okay, how can this person, what can he, what can this person do for me? Um, that's just the very wrong approach. Um, yeah, I, in my mind, anyway, you know. Yeah, and you know, and it seems it's, it's in some ways it seems in vogue, you know, because there are all these quote hustlers out there, and right, you know, right. guys trying to make it, and they're you know all about making it big and all this kind of stuff, and you know the the attitude, and I don't know, it's just, um, and I and I think. Um, you know, like when when they talk about all this work stuff, work advice, workbooks, and all this kind of stuff, you know, and it delves into networking and everything, but it's always laid out with this idea of, okay, what can you get from it or how can you, you know, make something out of this? But, you know, I find what you're saying is is much more truer to reality in that you know, you've, you've got to just, you know, be able to have a conversation with someone and, and be okay with it, not going anywhere. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and and especially, you know, I, I've only been on the very, I've only had little peaks at this, but the Nashville music scene that you're a part of, um, the little bits I've seen, you know, it does impress me it, how tight a group uh, a quasi family that can be. Um, and I don't think you would get the full benefit of that if you were just on the make all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Nashville is an 
amazing community. The musician community is, is amazing as well. And, you know, for what we do in music, a lot of it is based on, is relationship-based. Yes, you've got to be a great player, and you've got to spend a lot of time on, on your craft. I don't want to negate that at all, because it's extremely important. But yeah. you're not going to get a gig if you're an asshole. You know? Yeah, it's, right. It's pretty much, and that's, that's where developing relationships is important because you know a guy i met two years ago may call me tomorrow for a gig that when we're buddies and you know i never expected when i had first met him that i'd be playing with him or get a gig from but you never know who's gonna be in need of a of a drummer or musician in general and the more relationships you build the better chance you have of getting getting work you know yeah um and you've talked about you know uh how much you were influenced by that teacher you had early on in life, that mentor. Yeah. Yeah. You are now an adjunct percussion instructor at Tennessee state university. Do you also incorporate for lack of a better term, life lessons into your teaching? Sure. Yeah. I I feel like that's just as important as the music stuff. Um, Mm. I teach them as well. Um, because, you know, regardless of whatever they do, some will major in music and continue in music. Some will graduate and decide they want to go a different route. So hopefully whatever we do in our lessons can relate to whatever they do down the line. And going back to my, my teacher, um, yeah, he was, he was my band director from fifth grade through 12th grade. And I would say in high school, about almost a quarter of the high school um, students were in band because he was that mm-hmm. he was like that much. And looking back, and at the time I didn't realize it, but looking back, it wasn't about how good of a band we were. It's more he was teaching us about life and and um, treating people with respect, and it just is more life lesson stuff, which mm-hmm. made made students like him. You know, he was very well liked and well respected, um, and that made me want to you know, kind of pursue music. And he he's a great musician himself, composer. And since then, he's actually, he retired from band directing and started this program called CEO for high school students, which has high school students create businesses in, in high school. And uh, their classroom teaching isn't in a classroom, it's at other businesses. So they're getting real life experience. Um, so he's created that, started at one school, and now he's in, I don't know how many, just, he's in quite a few states now, and it's just grown like crazy. Um, but that's just who he is, and anything he does is is great. And he, mm. he has made documentaries from sports to Barnes to World War II to Vietnam, um, and he's done all the filming, the writing, the editing, the music. He does it all, and you know he does it because it's something he wants to do at the time, and um, he just figures out how to do it. And, you know, he, there's no limits on, he doesn't put any limits on anybody. And that's one thing too, I've, I've learned a lot from him. It's something, it's kind of like that with my accident, it could have been gotten very discouraged and it's like, well, I can't do this music stuff anymore. What am I going to do? It's yeah. no, it's figuring out how to wait to, to make it work, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, and now he's unfortunately battling cancer and, um, oh. so, you know, yeah. So it's, it's been rough, but he's still, um, an influence to everyone. He is supposed to 
you got diagnosed I think, two and a half years ago with stage four pancreatic cancer oh. and the, the expectancy for that isn't long at all, but he's two and a half years later, he's still here and still fighting mm. it. So he's, he continues to be influential. He's, a, wow. he's a, an amazing person. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and I'll give him a little plug as well. He wrote a book called Things Wish You Knew Yesterday, which is uh, it's an easy read, but it's it pretty much sums up his teaching and kind of the stuff we've been talking about, like life lessons stuff that is is kind of common sense stuff, but you don't think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, like the whole personal capital, the thing um, that's involved in there. But just it's a easy read, but it's it'll make you when you read it, it'll make you think and go, oh, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. do that um but yeah it's 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 a awesome he's an amazing person and uh yeah and i was very thankful and fortunate that he was in my life at such a young age when i started band in fifth grade and um you know he gave me my first studio experience my first uh, professional orchestra experience um so it's yeah it's it's pretty amazing and i hope mm-hmm. i can you know just be a small percentage for in my teaching just have a small percentage of his influence in what I teach as well. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he's, he's amazing. And, and I, you know, I feel very thankful he was in my life and I hope somebody has, you know, someone like that in their life to give you that motivation and extra, extra drive and push, you know, yeah, I think that's important. It, well, you know, now for, uh, regarding the role reversal where, you know, the student becomes the teacher, um, right. with, with your work at Tennessee state, what have you learned from that experience? From teaching? Yes. Um, well, and that's a good question. And every student is different. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't take the same approach. I don't think you can really take the same and I teach most of the stuff I teach um is just one on one lessons. Mm-hmm. Um so I get to, you know, spend time with one student for an hour once a week. So, and the, the approach to each student has to be a little different because not not everybody is the same or learns the same, and certain things will motivate one student that don't another. So, it's it, to me, it's taken a little time at first to get to know the student and understand him or her, and then kind of guide what I do or how I teach to what will they'll react to the best. And that's probably one thing I learned um, just from over the years of teaching, um, but also just going back to, to Mr. Linville, who, who we were talking about, yeah. um, making it more about just music and not, and, and you can relate, you know, life stuff to music, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's how often you practice, you know, if you have the drive and you really want to do this, you should want to practice and not be forced to practice. Um, so try to give them the drive and motivation to want to get better, not just musically, but as a better person too. Mm-hmm. that's important yeah yeah and then speaking of studio work you you have your own home studio 2g's studio where you record tracks yeah. and loops etc what um what knowledge have you gained from from having your own studio and doing that work that you didn't know beforehand oh a, a ton of stuff like when i went into it I'd done some recording at other studios in the past and I enjoyed it. But, uh, I would say probably six or seven years ago is when I started getting into it, doing the home, home recording thing. And, um, at the time I was on the road with some guys with Kelly who, 
um, were more knowledgeable than I was in this world. So I got a lot of input from them and just slowly got into it, got some mics, got a couple of preamps mm. and really had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> but, and that kind of goes back to, you know, talking about, you know, you, you gotta, you can't always be comfortable. You got to get into stuff that's not comfortable for you because I feel, I feel that's the way you, you really learn and grow. Mm. Um, and, and actually it, it came from going back to Mr. Linval again, the same guy, he was doing a documentaries and he asked me to do some music for him mm. and both first playing and then writing some stuff. And I didn't really have a, much of an outlet for that. I didn't have that studio at the time. So I got a little bit to, to start creating and then that gave me the, the drive to want to, you know, do more. So that's kind of why I did the home studio. Um, and I'm able to track drums and, and so from there it started very slow and then I got more into, you know, miking techniques and which mics should use and then soundproofing like, and I don't have the, the greatest room. I wish I'd have, you know, taller ceilings and a bigger room to get a, a bigger sound if I need, but yeah. I don't it's just mm. you know, my basement, but I've learned, you know, I've soundproofed it to where I don't have, crazy reflections I was getting earlier. Hmm. So, and that's just been a slow process and I've, you know, gotten a couple of extra preamps for kick and snare just to help my sounds. And, mm-hmm. and it's to me, recording is just a never ending learning tool, hmm. um, both good and both frustrating <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, sometimes you, you want to do something quick. You don't have a lot of time and something goes wrong to where you're spending a whole day trying to fix a problem that you didn't have. And it's very, very frustrating at times, but it's a part of it. And you got to kind of, you know, work at problem solving and fix it and move on, you know? Yeah. Um, But it's, it's been a great tool for me, just both musically and, and mentally just to, to, can you, I feel like I continue to grow. So when I do get called for a session outside of the house, I feel like I can do it. And it's not been, you know, a weeks or a month since I've done a session, I've, you know, I can do it whenever I want to at home and, mm-hmm. and it's great. It's, it's been a good outlet, just, you know, a good, another way to make money and another way to, to can you continue to grow relationships with people that send me stuff to play on. And it's, it's been great all around. And has it changed your perspective for when you go into a bigger studio? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I know, because sometimes for me, one battle I had when I was before I had the home studio was I would record, play something. I felt like it was it worked, but then I go listen and play back, and it didn't translate how I thought it was going to. If that makes mm. sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, just listening to it and not being in the moment. So I feel like doing it at home, I can play something and I can listen back. Just just me. I'm in no you know I don't have to be in a rush, and I can try different stuff and see what works best. And I feel like doing that over time has has helped me over the years to where I when I do get a session outside the house, I feel like I have a better idea of what will translate on on tape as opposed to um just being in the moment and playing it. So I feel like it's it's helped me and I f- hope it continues to help me as well. Mm. And just in addition to that, sonically what's what should what snare should I use, you know, for this tune? And the the more you do it the more you you feel like you have a better understanding of okay this snare will work for this or you know or whatever and and I feel like the home thing has really helped me with that so when I you know when I do get called for a session I have a better idea just of sounds and what you know how much muffling do you use on this drum or 
have it wide open or have it dead. Um, everything, every little thing really helps, I think. Mm-hmm. And and were yeah. you a gear junkie before you started with this, or? Um, I've always had interest in drones, but I've learned more about like mics and pre's and EQ and compression. That I had really no clue. I didn't have much background in that prior to doing the home thing, so I kind of learned on the spot. To whereas my playing is very, I come from very. I took lessons and went to college and you know got my masters and very school oriented. But yeah. with the recording, it's very kind of jump in and, you know, tweak this. And if it sounds better, cool. If not, then, you know, turn it the other way kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, and, and I was lucky to have friends that had more, a lot more knowledge than I did. So I could ask their opinion or what do you recommend? Yeah. Um, so a lot, a lot that helped a lot too, but a lot of it was just trying it and seeing if it worked. And if not, try something else. <laughs> um, but Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, we covered all of my questions. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to discuss? Um, not really. I mean, uh, I guess the accident was a big part of, of just my overall view and, and where I am now compared to five years ago is in a different place. Um, and, and I guess the main thing, and I may have mentioned this earlier, you know, everybody goes through bad times in life yeah. and unfortunately but just trying to find the and i think there's always some positives that come out of it sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard to find and it was hard to find for me at first but um as as time has gone on there you know I, i'm trying to, to find it and make the most of it and and i think that's important not not just music related but you know whatever it is um there's always, I think there's always good that comes from the bad and it's hard to find, but having that support system and, and family friends is important, um, to help you realize, help you get through those times and help you realize, you know, um, it could always be worse. You know, I shouldn't yeah. be here right now. So <laughs> me just being here, <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, I shouldn't be here or I should be in a wheelchair paralyzed. Mm. Um, and so anything I can do, physically that that i'm still able to play drums is amazing and i'm very thankful for that so um i want to do as best as best as i can and i want to do more to help others and and so just you know i'm trying to make the most of what was a crappy situation at the time but in the long run i'm gonna hopefully i'm gonna be a better person because of it Mm-hmm. And, you know, the music industry is not the easiest biz in the world. Uh, not that there are no. a lot of cush businesses out there anymore, but still, it's, you know, it's it's a roller coaster and, and uh, um, the odds are stacked against you. And, you know, and it's going to be amazingly uh, uh, stressful <laughs> uh, field in which to make a living. After yeah. post accident, are you you know more zen about it all to where it's you know you just kind of let go of those things you don't have control over? Well, yes and no. I mean, I feel like it's still very important. You've got to be proactive, whether it be getting better as a player or mm. more proactive on just doing different things. You know, for example, I, we keep busy with Easton, but. When I'm not on the road, I'm either recording at the house, or I'm still playing gigs downtown, down on Broadway, Nashville, mm. um, or I'm still teaching. I'm doing whatever I can just to have different. It's all music related, 
Yeah. Just different outlets, you know, so to where if I lose my road gig, I don't feel like I'm screwed or I'm out of, you know, yes, it would suck, but I feel like I have other other things going on to where I could keep busy, whether it just be playing downtown or do more teaching or have other avenues to, to uh, develop and not just relying on one source, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that's very important, especially nowadays um, in, the, in the music world. It's very important to have different outlets you're into um, for not only networking, but making money, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, Diversification yeah. has become more and more important. Yes, definitely. That's the show. Thank you for listening. You can find more interviews at bands2fans.com. Our theme music was created by iSourceMusic.com. For more about them, follow the link in the show notes. And please check out our other podcasts, Connect to Fans, where I interview insightful and creative business people, and A Healthy Dose of ER. Two longtime friends talk through episodes, dish about characters, and basically revel in the fact that their favorite show is finally available for binging. You can find that at erpodcast.net. <laughs>